0: Yeah, I know. It's just it's one of those things. I get it. All right. Oh, man, I gave away like what I was going to do. Maybe no one read it. Um, well, uh, good morning. Uh, it's good to be back with you. We've had as our, I guess, what, three, three weeks, four weeks now, given this past week of no Sunday school. And so we are stepping back into our series on baptism. And what I decided I was going to do is just to have it on the books, okay? Uh, for, actually, for a couple of reasons. We have a lot of people who have spent time in PCA, that is Presbyterian Church of America, uh, the conservative side, one of the conservative sides of the Presbyterian Church. Uh, the OPC um, come out of those churches. Here they are in a Reformed Baptist church who are used to the practice of, uh, are familiar with the practice of infant baptism or pedo baptism. A lot of my, a lot of people who I who I highly respect, preachers, theologians, have held to this position, both contemporarily and historically. Uh, and the the next topic in this series on baptism is who are the appropriate objects of baptism. And so I decided that okay, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I usually do not do a polemical, extended critique of something, but just so I have it once on the books for now and posterity so I can tell people to go back and watch it and don't have to say it again, what I'm going to do is I'm going to engage in a fairly comprehensive and thorough presentation of, uh, critique of, and then give an alternative to the Reformed Pado-Baptist understanding of baptism, okay? So if you wondered— why Presbyterians baptize infants, why we don't, what are the reasons we'll strap in. That is, if that's what you were wanting this morning, you came in, you drove in saying, this is what I need, you are in great luck because that uh, is what we're going to be doing over the next couple of sessions together. So let me start in, in prayer. It's no no small task to disagree with some of these men and women uh, but nevertheless, I do, and I do so confidently, but so, I, but the, so the burden on me is to explain uh, why that's the case, isn't it? So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. God, we're thankful to be able to open the scriptures together. We're thankful to be able to study your word. We're thankful for a gospel that is both uh, that has promises both for us and our children and to all who are far off. We pray that uh, over the next couple of minutes here and over the next couple of weeks uh, that you would help us to understand these issues well and the contours of biblical history as it unfolds in the Bible. Pray that we would be humble and listen well. We ask for help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. The first thing that you need to know about Reformed Pado Baptism, infant baptism, is that our Presbyterian, uh, I should actually just start right there. I'm referring to a particular kind of person when I say pedo-baptism. This is going to actually be part of my critique on the very back end, that there is a ton of different traditions that baptize infants, and they do so for different reasons. As a historian looking in, you might think that it's a tradition seeking a theology to justify it. Okay, But when I say something about, when I say reformed pedo-baptists, I know that's a mouthful, I don't want to say that every single time. I'm having in mind our good, are uh, uh, good Presbyterian friends, our good Orthodox, our, our good PCA friends, our good OPC friends, uh, essentially Presbyterians and, and Anglicans in most cases. Anglicans would have a different view of what the what the infant baptism does. They believe that it removes original sin, that it's actually effective, that paves the way for effective calling of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're, they are still solidly reformed through and through. their are five pointers, but they believe that the infant baptism does. They would be in here. But for this, essentially, we're talking about uh, uh, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who are so dear to us, we just happen to disagree on this issue. So uh, I don't want to get caught saying, uh, you know, Presbyterian, and someone says, well, what about the Anglicans? Or say PCA, well, what about OPC? Does this is and I also don't want to say Reformed paedo-baptism every single time either, okay? So just, all right, so I'm not going to say anything else about that. Uh, the second thing you need to understand is that people who practice infant baptism also practice believer's baptism. So every, every denomination who baptizes infants believes that if you're an unbeliever who repents and believes the gospel, that you should be baptized, okay? So it's, it's not that they don't practice Believers' baptism. It says they don't practice believers-only baptism. The second thing that you need to know. Third thing that you need to know is that can you, how can y'all can y'all see that all right? So infant baptism. <coughs> excuse me. Need some WD forty. <clears throat> infant baptism stems largely, primarily from a particular understanding of redemptive history. Um, This is so-called covenant theology. I say covenant in quotes. It's always fun when someone steals like a central biblical category and makes it like describe their view. You know, it's like gospel theology. It's like, whoops, you got us. I guess I have an un-gospel theology if I disagree. So covenant theology, again, this is going to designate Reformed, Pado, Baptistic, Covenant theology, Presbyterian covenant theology. Although the covenant theology of the Reformed Baptists articulated in something like the 1689 Confession is still covenant theology. It's just this is what it's been labeled for, for better or worse. Notice how it's structured into three primary covenants. Number one is a pre-creation covenant, the Pactum Salutis, the covenant of redemption. This is an agreement between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to create. And to redeem. This is kind of like the plan. This is where you circle up in the huddle and say, this is the play we're going to run. That's kind of a logical first step here. They weren't just doing these things on the fly. The second covenant is a covenant of works. Adam is in the garden. He is given commands. Um, he has said that if he does these things, blessings will accrue to him. If he does not, there will be consequences. Sometimes this is called his probationary phase. He was created in a phase where he could have obeyed, but he was not yet glorified. He wasn't sin—excuse uh, sin, uh, me. He wasn't sinful, uh, but he also was not perfect. He was kind of—you know—he was in this state that we can't really relate to, honestly. And unfortunately, he disobeys. <coughs> excuse me. Unfortunately, he disobeys. He is cast out of the garden and no longer is obeying God, going to be a way to pursue God, to rule and have dominion over the earth, to multiply that image everywhere, and to spread the image perfectly. And so what happens is, in Genesis 3.15, there's a promise. There's a seed that is going to come, and that starts on their understanding the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace of grace and notice that the covenant of grace is a supra covenant that kind of covers all of the covenants okay so it's broken up so that everything after the garden is in one large covenant under which the other covenants that I have articulated there uh, they are subsumed under this larger umbrella of the covenant of grace all right so you have the noahic covenant the Abrahamic covenant, which is going to be super central. The Mosaic covenant, there's debate among covenant theologians whether that is a republication of the covenant of works and how that fits into the covenant of grace. People say, well, no, Adam, Israel is pictured as a second Adam. They're given a law. They're told to do this. They're told that there'll be blessings if you obey, curses if you don't. This is a republication of what Adam got in the garden. And, and it's, I was going to say fun. I don't know if it's fun. It's interesting to look over the fence and watch the in-house debate among the Presbyterians about how the Mosaic Covenant fits into the singular covenant of grace. Of course, you have the Davidic Covenant and then you have the new with the coming of Christ. Okay, that is the fundamental structure of Reformed Pado-Baptistic Covenant theology. Before I get into how that lands you with infant baptism or anything like that any questions about that overall structure because this is foundational to the view yes asher for the for the reasons that we are going to tease out today and the next couple of sessions it's a fine question though which is why we are tasked with answering it any other questions about this framework Excuse me, all right, so what is the first argument for infant baptism? It is an argument from covenantal continuity. Again, you notice how on the supra covenant of grace, there's really just one covenant. All of the covenants on this understanding are the same in substance, they are only different in administration, they are different in details, but fundamentally they 're all part of the same covenant which means there's going to be a heavy sense of continuity as you go throughout the Bible read this with me because the new covenant is the same in substance and different only in administration from previous covenants in virtue of being part of the covenant of grace the new testament excuse me the new covenant contains both covenant keepers and covenant breakers believers and unbelievers okay So, ever since Abraham, and certainly when you get to Moses, the people of God have been, for lack of a better word, a mixed community of folks. You had people who feared God in their heart. Uh, You had people who did not fear God in their heart, even if they might have lived an outwardly moral life. You had people who were covenant keepers, and you had people who were covenant breakers. Um, and, And so... If you assume a very strong understanding of continuity, that's exactly what you would expect in the new covenant. You see how that works? I mean, if you're assuming continuity under one covenant of grace, certainly you would assume that that is the same. If something is not explicitly overturned or modified in a succeeding covenant, we should simply assume continuity of the basis of the same God fulfilling the same promises to his people. Okay, that's the that's the idea. Um, So, again, you could be someone who was faithless in Israel, but you still got delivered from the Egyptians. And you still got the uh, the law revealed to you at Sinai and you still crossed the Jordan and you still went into the promised land and provided the community as a whole was faithful. You were still delivered from the judges, even if you were over there in your little tent, your little house, and you you didn't have a, a heart that feared Yahweh. Because this was a mixed group of people. And so the first argument here is that this is exactly what we would assume coming into the New Testament, into the New Covenant. Is that what we see on the pages of the New Testament? And so what I'm going to do when I present these, I'm not always going to say according to this view. I'm going to try to present it as if it's my view. I'm going to argue for it as forcefully as possible. Because if you're not prepared to look at the most forceful arguments Uh, for positions you disagree with, then you're not doing serious theology. So let's look at one passage that seems to suggest that this mixed nature of the covenant continues to abide in the new covenant just like it did in the covenants before it. Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6. For a lot of people, particularly Baptists, this is known as a problem passage in quotes, right, uh, for security of the believer, for perseverance of the saints, the idea that a believer can't lose their salvation, and all the debate among Baptists comes down to, okay, is this talking about a believer or an unbeliever? What does it mean to fall away, etc.? For some of you, this will sound like a very novel interpretation. This will sound like a very novel interpretation. But this is the move that our Presbyterian friends make, talking about people who should be more mature than they are. He says, (coughs) whoever wrote Hebrews, What is this? The Presbyterians have a totally different category for this. This is someone who is truly in the covenant, but just wasn't a believer. And so they truly fell out of the covenant. This is someone who was in the new covenant. Look at all those blessings. These are covenantal blessings being described here. Someone who's in the covenant, but they don't have a regenerate heart. And so they fall away, not from salvation, because all of our Presbyterians are, you know, uh, uh, or reform. They don't fall away from salvation. No, 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 no. What they fall out of is the covenant. Demonstrating that the covenant contains a mixture of believers and unbelievers. Okay? One potential text showing that. Hebrews chapter 10. Turn over there with me. Let's look at this one together. Starting in verse 28, who again whoever the author of Hebrews is writes that anyone Uh, chapter 10 verse 28 anyone who has set aside the law of moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one listen who has trampled underfoot the son of god and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace here is someone who is set apart. They are covenantally included in a covenant, and yet they are not a believer. They're included in the new covenant, but they're not a believer, and so they will be a covenant breaker. They will be, he's describing someone who is a covenant breaker. We still have, this is exactly what we would expect, a mixed community, believers and unbelievers, and the call of Christ is to be faithful to the covenant uh, that you uh, find yourself in or, for example, are born into. Okay, so the idea here gets traction moving forward about how you get to infant baptism from the Abrahamic genealogical principle. Turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 17. This is absolutely foundational. It's really under uh, foundational for anyone's theology, biblical theology, but especially. Especially this particular argument. Okay. This is the famous passage with Abraham in the covenant of circumcision. Took a sip here. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall... Uh, be the father of a multitude of nations no longer shall your name be abram but your name shall be abraham for i have made you the father of a multitude of nations i will make you exceedingly fruitful and i will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and i will establish my covenant between me and you and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting Covenant. So there's an everlasting covenant that includes you and your physical offspring. Okay. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout generations, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and And he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this is the genealogical principle. This is the genealogical principle that over redemptive history, the promise has been, to the people of God and to their children. To Abraham it is, he says to Abraham that you are going to circumcise your offspring. Your offspring are going to receive the sign of the covenant. Those who are born to you. Those who are physically born to you. Your physical children. And so uh, it's certainly when we get to the new covenant and especially in light of the text that we just look at, why would we expect anything different? So you have Physical children who are being born into the covenant, and that would be someone who is uh, someone who is part of the covenant who is a believer. So it's going to be children that are born to believers. They're born into the covenant are to receive the sign, the covenant sign. This is just basic uh, biblical theology here. That uh, th- th- there's no reason to think has been. Uh, um, uh, uh, um, Left the word. Yeah, changed. That's, that'll, that'll work. That is, yeah, it has not been changed. It has been modified. Uh, it's something that is simply continuous. The new covenant is redemptively downstream from the Abrahamic covenant, which is a covenant with you and your children and your children because they're part of the covenant because the promises to you and your children is to receive the sign of the covenant. The new covenant sign happens to be baptism instead of circumcision. But that's one of those superficial differences between administration uh, of the covenants and not the substance. The new covenant is under the, uh, the covenant of grace, just like the Abrahamic covenant. They're all the same in substance. OK, all of them are mixed. All of them are mixed. All of, in all of them, the promise are to children as well. And so in the new covenant, the physical children, infants get the covenant Sign just like they did, just like they did in Israel. And if they and they they grow up and maybe they're not an unbeliever. Well, remember the covenants mixed though. Maybe they're someone who's cut off out of the new covenant. Maybe they're unfortunately a Hebrew six or a Hebrews ten, someone who profanes the blood of the covenant, who sanctif- that sanctified them. Okay, that is that's the idea. So let's give two more examples. Uh, first is acts two thirty eight and two thirty nine turn with me there if you would again, these are the for people who have been in these debates for many, many, many years, you'll know that these are just the texts that over and over and over and over get appealed to, which is why I'm going to them. So notice that Peter, this is his sermon at Pentecost in chapter 2. He's talking about making a promise to David. Verse 29, May I say you the confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb, is with us to this day. Verse 30, but being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades Nor did his flesh see corruption. Talking about the promises made to Israel, particularly through David. Christ saves as the Davidic Messiah. That's the context of what Peter's like ultimate uh, kind of mic drop moment there. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's talking to a bunch of Jews who have just recently, not with their physical, but have just crucified the Savior that was promised to them. That's what he's standing up and saying. Hey, guys, you know, the one who was going to come sit on the house of David, y'all blew it. The guy, that's Jesus. Now, thankfully, he rose from the dead, but you still killed him. You crucified him. And then they asked, they cut to the heart. They're like, oh, my goodness, the, the, the spirit opened their hearts. What should we do? That's what they say. They said to Peter, Brothers and Brothers, what shall we do in verse thirty-seven? And this is what he says. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Why? For the promise, okay, the promise of the covenants, the promise that we just heard talked about with regard to David. The promise that God has always made with his people, the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off which would be the Gentiles, the Gentiles. Okay. And if you read the prophets, there's always been hope for the Gentiles. Even with Abraham, the Gentiles are not an afterthought. Okay. The, the, The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That should, everyone would have said, yeah, of course it is. That's what the promises of God are. Everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself, Ligon Duncan, I was actually reading a little bit of, he has a very simplified argument for covenant theology that he uses a lot. And one of them is just that God covenants with people, with believers, God fears people who are part of the covenant and their children in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And one citation is from Genesis 17 and the other is right here, Acts 2.39. For the promise is for you and your children and for the Gentiles, all those who are far off, all who the Lord Call because God is a covenant keeping God with you and your children, okay, and so they should receive that promise they should in fact uh be baptized, okay let me see if there's anything else I want to say about that any questions about uh any questions about that so far in terms of understanding the view here you're getting a picture emerge of how someone could yes. Yes, but they're not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Just just like just like I'm sorry. they'll be covenantally set apart, yeah. Just like the person in Israel who was is not faithful still got delivered out of Egypt and still had the mediating presence of Yahweh in the camp. You know, they still had a, ton, a host of spiritual benefits, Hebrews 6 on their account, right? Without actually being saved. They're in the covenant. There are benefits to it, and that's why it's so awful if you profane Hebrews ten twenty nine, the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified. You are in the new covenant of Christ, and you've fallen out of it. That's 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 the, that's the view. Right. Any other questions about any of these arguments thus far about understanding them? All right, let's look at he- uh, Excuse me, Hebrews first Corinthians chapter seven. First Corinthians chapter seven. And um, we're going to look at verses 12 through 14 here. In the context of discussing marriage, in light of the present crisis, whatever that means, commentator disagree, he's talking about staying as he is. He's giving, he's giving counsels to the married. And one particular scenario seems to come up, and it's like, well, what happens if I find myself married to an unbeliever? Is this marriage legitimate? I mean, hey, we're supposed to be all in for Jesus Christ. I mean, if I need, should I leave my spouse? Maybe they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, and I can't be in a mixed marriage. I understand how this works from the Old Testament, whatever the case is. And so in uh, uh, verse 12 and 14, uh, listen to what he says. He says, to the rest I say, not the Lord, meaning he's not quoting Jesus, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. The answer is no. Remain as you are. Remain with him. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Remain as you are. It's legitimate. It's legitimate. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, every, everyone here admits that the kind of holiness is the set of partness is not meaning that someone, that a wife makes somebody a Christian, right? Or that may even makes them necessarily a, renews their heart. It's the sense of being legitimate before God. It's a sense of being uh, um, set apart as something that you can stamp with authenticity and a clear conscience before God. It is certainly not generally how the term is used. There's no doubt about that But the context seems to make it almost certain here. But what's interesting is he says, you have this principle and one party uh, uh, sanctifies the other in the sense that it makes this thing legitimate. You shouldn't divorce. And there's there's an effect that happens to your children. Otherwise, if this principle were not the case, your children would be unclean. That's Old Testament language. But, other, but as it is, they are holy. Your children are covenantally set apart. They're not defiled because they're a result of a mixed marriage, like back in Ezra, where you had children of mixed marriages, and they said, oh no, we're going to have to put away our wives and put away our children. He's saying, no, they are, they are born into a covenant people. They are covenantally set apart as holy. It doesn't mean that they're Christians. It doesn't mean uh, that they all have a regenerate heart. They're all uh, you know, walking with the Lord, it means that they are in the camp. It means that they are in the camp and they are legitimate and therefore it certainly would stand to reason that the camp just as it's always been continues to be mixed, it continues to be for believers and their children and therefore we should seek to give the covenant sign on the basis of the Abrahamic genealogical principle to children of believers when at least one of one parent here, at least one parent is a believer. Because okay, they are born into the new covenant, should receive that sign as a token of what they need to grow up into, they need to be called to the faithfulness that has been declared over them with this sign administered to them as an infant so because so this is just one more example of this covenant this kind of external covenantal nature that the covenant has an, a true, a genuine external element. And an internal element, and you can fall away from one, but not the other. The new covenant is, in a word, mixed. Let's look at a couple more examples here. Moving on to the second argument. That was really all teasing out one argument from continuity. I was just giving you examples of the continuity. So that just to summarize, on the covenant of grace, we should expect continuity with practice. It's the same God, the same promises. All of the covenants are the same in substance. They differ only in administration. The promise has always been to, uh, to the parents and their children within the covenant. And just like the promise to Abraham, uh, children were circumcised. And so similarly in the new covenant, it is true that the sign changes, but those who are born... Uh, to those in the new covenant also receive that sign, resulting in a mixed covenant where you could be a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker and profane the blood of the covenant. But it, you're still ju- you still are genuinely in the new covenant, just like you were genuinely in the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant when you crossed the Red Sea uh, if you didn't fear Yahweh. You were still nevertheless a part of that covenant, and you could legitimately, in the new covenant, fall away from the covenant even though you were never a believer. Okay? Any questions about that? All right, let's talk about household baptisms. These are always fun. I'm only going to read two. There are four household baptisms, and when I critique, when I give my critique here, we're going to look at each one of them. When I give the presentation for right now, I'm just going to look at two. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Those are the 10 household baptisms, uh, the 10. I was looking at 10. The four household baptisms here. Okay? Let's just read two of them to give you an idea. Again, This is exactly what we would expect to see after generations and generations and generations of households receiving the covenant sign on the basis of a head of house. What we're about to see here is is households that receive the covenant sign on the exact same basis which everyone would be expecting anyways. First, Acts 16, uh, 15. (coughs) This is Lydia um, so they were going, let's see, so so they go from Troas, how much do I want to read here? They remain in the city. Let's just start 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul after she was baptized and her household as well she urged us saying if you have judged me to be faithful to the lord come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us well there you go well, she's obviously a wealthy woman she sells she sells silks fine cloths whatever it is she believes and on the basis of her belief she's baptized but also her entire household that's remarkable what about the example a couple verses later in Acts sixteen thirty three, This is the account of the Philippian jailer. Most of you are familiar with the account. He, was, he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself, the prison. It, things are really falling apart for this poor guy in one sense. But everything is about to really come together for him in another. It's a beautiful little story. Paul says in verse 28, But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them to the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. This is exactly what we would expect uh, with a strong continuity with the Old Testament. That in these cases, entire households are baptized, uh, presumably containing children, which would be the Jewish norm. I don't know what happened with the parentheses and the dash there. Sorry about that. And yet there is no evidence of faith in anyone except the head of house. It's an argument from silence. The only thing that you see is the head of house is the one who repents and believes and listens. And then the whole household is baptized. That sounds exactly like what we would expect coming out of ancient Israel. As a result here, baptism replaces circumcision as the external sign of the covenant. So it is identical in function. It simply changes. It's one of the administrative differences of the new covenant. Here is the summary. I'm going to summarize everything I've just said. I know it's a nightmare, but I'm going to let people read it if they want to. Okay? You don't have to read it. You can pretend it's not there because I was going to say it. I was going to say it, but I thought, some people like reading. I'm just, uh, just, you know, just close your eyes if it's a nightmare. God entered into a covenant of grace with mankind, which has developed throughout redemptive history under different sub-covenants and administrations that for all their differences are the same in substance and rooted in grace. In accordance with the covenant made with Abraham, children of those born to covenant members are the proper recipients of the covenant sign. The New Covenant is no different. Children born to parents who are New Covenant members, i.e. at least one as a Christian, are the proper recipients of the covenant sign, baptism. Not only is such a mixed and genealogical understanding of the covenants nowhere rejected in the New Testament like we would expect of such a dramatic move, but we see exactly what we would expect given a continuity that everyone would have assumed, entire households receiving the covenant sign on the basis of the head of house repenting and believing, true covenant members who nevertheless fall out of and profane the covenant, and children who are holy because at least one of their believing parents sets them apart covenantally. Baptism then, which replaces circumcision, function as a gracious blessing by confirming covenant membership on account of the promises While pointing recipients toward the need to repent toward and be faithful to Christ, their covenant mediator. Okay? That is a summary of Reformed, Pado Baptistic covenant theology. The primary argument is from the framework and the overall structure of redemptive history, and then they zoom into some individual, a handful of individual proof texts within the New Testament, including household baptisms. Any questions uh, about that before I? Present the a Baptistic alternative, and then in subsequent sessions, I am going to critique everything that I've just said here about the about the, the Presbyterian account. But I want to try to give it the most robust presentation that I can, which is hard to do when you disagree with a view. But I've tried to give it the most persuasive foundation I, I can. Any any questions about? Yes. Uh, from the, from the perspective, What's the significance of what the... the so the, the sign of the new covenant, which you're saying is, is identical to, to the old, but yeah. it wouldn't say something. In terms of... oh sign she would not have been circumcised. Oh, you're talking about oh, oh, uh, just a woman in general. Yeah. So, so what they would say is it signifies the same thing, but who receives it gets expanded. Now you might say... Wow. That's a good question. I mean, you might say that that's a little too clean of a way to put it. Uh, I, I, I think there's something there. There might be something there. But I mean, you make a good point that, you know, for all the continuity in the Old Testament, it wasn't everyone descended from Abraham, was it? It was men. Well, in the New Covenant, it's like men and women get the sign. Well, that's not continuity, that's discontinuity. Why does, it, why does it say, again, so I mean, I've tried to present it winsomely and, and gloss over some things in my presentation, but you notice Acts 2.39 says your promise is for you and your children, not for you and your your male children. That would be, that's continuity. Yes. 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 Yes, the question was if a parent's, if, if a children's parents were to leave the church, would they still be part of the covenant? Yes, they were baptized into it. They received the sign. It. It's not of the no, no, no. You're objectively born to the covenant. In fact, so much so that I was talking with a, uh, a, a former Presbyterian pastor the other day, and uh, at their church, they accepted Roman Catholic infant baptism had people who were believers, you were about, it's, it's something that is, it has nothing to do with you, it has something to do with what is done to you and setting you apart into something. So in their Presbyterian church, they accepted Roman Catholic baptism. If you were a Roman Catholic, baptized as an infant, you'd have to be baptized in their church. You, you became Reformed. It really went from one end to the other uh, because you had already been baptized as an infant, received the covenant sign. Yes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> timeout. We've got to call a time out. You're jumping ahead of me to the Baptist argument. A fine question, though. Any other questions about the, yes, one here and then one here. No, go, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The best ones always show up here, man. So, baptism and the Lord's Supper, not they don't offer the Lord's Supper to everybody. Right. So some do. Yeah, some do. Paedo communions a thing for some folks. Um there there's again over again you might suggest that there's an inconsistency there. But as a Baptist who looks over the fence at the dueling uh, Reformed Pado Baptists, there is an in-house argument about whether or not they should receive the covenant meal, because one is a covenant, uh, one is a ordinance of initiation into the covenant, and then one is an ordination of faithfulness to the covenant. And so one is one, w- one, um, one suggestion is no, they're in the covenant, they get the meal, plain and simple. That's continuity. The other way is, well, hold on. But the two signs mean different things. You get the, you, you receive the sign to enter the covenant in, objectively as an infant, but only believers are to take part, which is a sharing in the fellowship of Christ. And so um, there's an in, there's an intramural debate among our Reformed Presbyterian brothers and sisters about whether or not infants, whether or not Pedo communion should be a thing or not. We might, we, it's possible we, we that may come up later in my critique, but there might be some inconsistencies there. If you're a covenant, a covenant breaker would be someone who's in the covenant, but who is an unbeliever, who at the end of the day is an unbeliever, yeah. who's not faithful. So it could be an elder, a deacon, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, you know, it might might be unlikely, but certainly certainly could be. Any other? Yeah, then word, Sorry. So, yes you can be you can come into the covenant from outside yeah you can leave the covenant. what's the benefit of the covenant? so so we are almost at time here <laughs> we're almost at time um so the the benefit of the covenant is the Hebrews is in Hebrews 6 okay the benefit of the covenant is that you are to be to be part of the covenant people of God is to regularly be hearing the word of God is to be people who are who are encouraging you to repent and believe the gospel, who are rebuking you for a wayward life. You're seeing the Holy Spirit work. You're seeing the lives transformed um, depending on the situation you're partaking in a covenant meal, tangible reminders of what Christ did on, for your behalf. You're getting every single benefit you can possibly imagine and then saying, no, I'm done. That's the benefit. Okay. All right, we got 15 seconds. Any, any final question? All right, when we come back, what we'll do is we will look at the Baptistic alternative. I'm going to present the Baptist case, and then I'm going to go back and systematically pick apart uh, everything I talked about today. Um, and so I hope that, I hope you, my number one goal is that I was clear. And I hopefully presented it forcefully enough so that at least felt the weight of it. Because what I would hate is to walk away and think, oh, what kind of silly person would believe this? There's a lot of people who know the Bible way better than I do and way better than you do. And have walked with the Lord far longer than me and far longer than you who, who hold to covenant theology. Some of my favorite pastors, some of my favorite theologians, past and present, hold to it. So I'm trying to present it as a serious So you feel the weight of it, even if it's not ultimately persuasive. I want you to feel why someone who took the Bible very seriously could come to that conclusion, even if you disagree. We'll pick right back up here next time. Lord willing, uh, let me pray. God, thank you for being with us in the last few moments. Pray that this is not just a futile exercise, but this would help us understand the shape of redemption better, our role in it. Ultimately, that it would help us make more of Jesus and uh, help invigorate our understanding of the church, its importance, and the the nature of the promises we have. Be with us in our next hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you.